Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1349, the poet Petrarch urged the city republic of Florence to attack the Uboldini, who controlled the passes through the Apennines north of that city. Petrarch's plea and the war that followed are the engine at the center of William Caffero's new book, Petrarch's War. But it is much about much more than the war. To mix metaphors, the war is also a pry bar that allows Caffero to open up a new perspective into long-running debates over wages, finance, the economic history of medieval Florence, and means by which to make a careful argument about the importance of historical context, for regardless of the scope or subject matter of inquiry, says Caffero, a proper understanding of context lies at the core of the historian's task. William Caffero is the Gertrude Conway Vanderbilt Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. His previous books include Mercenary Companies and the Decline of Siena and John Hawkwood, an English mercenary in 14th century Italy. As you'll discover, he is a social historian, a military historian, an economic historian, all of those or none of those, which is to say, to once again paraphrase Edmund Morgan, an interesting historian. Bill, <laughs> welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Albert. Thanks. Great to be here. So the plague, the Black Death, the killer, yeah. the destroyer of nations. Yeah. Uh, this is in 1349. This is a very well-documented – well, it's very I – mean, first of all, this is a small book. It's 199 pages plus it's very small. notes. Um, and very expensive too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very expensive. Uh, we're going to have to – I would suggest listeners wait till the paperback. But anyway, we'll, we'll try to – yeah. Um, it is extremely expensive. Um, it's a, about a very small incident. I yeah. think it's not. This is not a war that usually gets into the English language histories of medieval Italy. It's I I barely remembered its existence. Yeah. Uh, it's overshadowed by the Black Death that came before and the wars that immediately succeed it. Um, okay. So, but it's very much the book is very much about the plague and then the war. So, how did the Black Death hurt Florence? Well, I mean, it had a dramatic effect not only on Florence, but all of Europe, as you know. I mean, so in particular in Florence, I mean, we have the Decameron, which was written at about the time of the plague by Boccaccio, which describes in detail. Uh, we use it as a historical source, even though it's literature, hmm. which shows that, you know, society was turned upside down. And now that's the kind of standard um, interpretation of what went on in Florence. And Florence was hit particularly hard. I mean, it loses a large percentage of its population, maybe 60, 70 percent. 60, 70 percent of the population. 
I mean, it's hard to estimate because we don't really know how many people lived in yeah. a particular place. So you presume that, you know, Florence had weighed 120,000 people, maybe 100,000 people, and maybe as many as 60 or 70,000. But these are all kind of, I mean, as I tell my students jokingly, where do we have these type of, you know, accurate statistics? Well, chroniclers say these things. But there's a chronicler in Siena who claimed that, you know, 80,000 of uh, Sienese died at the same time. We don't think there were 80,000 people living in Siena at that time. So it's hard. You know, all numbers in chronicles have to be um, looked at very carefully. And and famously, there are no Florentine census records until 1430. Well, yeah, that you're thinking of the Catasto in 1427, exactly, yeah. and it gives you a real sense of who lived there. I mean, there are other things that haven't quite been studied that would give you a sense, um, like the Estimo from uh, 1351, which may give us a sense of how many people lived there, although it's not clear. I have a friend who's working on that. Um, but no, yeah, we don't really have a good, we have, you know, we have a Volani Chronicle, which is very, very famous, and Volani gives you estimates of what happened, and we also have a Stephanie um chronicle that gives you some estimates and and you know how accurate they are it's it's hard to judge it's hard to judge. so the i i guess the the important part that we sh- to emphasize is that whatever it was it was huge <laughs> it, yeah. it it shook it turned florence in particular but all of medieval all of medieval europe it turned it upside down <laughs> we've got in some places we've got i think good evidence of 50% mortality rates or higher um, so we can imagine that's part of the epide- epidemiology of this, whatever whatever it was, pneumonic, bubonic plague. We won't get into that. Um, that's a whole discussion in itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What it's a huge, you know, huge people people stop talking to each other for long periods of time over this. But um, okay. Um, but anyway, what's extraordinary is that immediately after this, they decide to fight a war, and war is expensive, and it requires people. Yeah. So, so that's an extraordinary choice on their part. Yeah, I found that extraordinary. And actually, I had never heard of this war at all. And I thought I was I was, I was doing a study for over 100 years and I've been working on it for 20 more than 20 years about the whole period of the 14th century and the wars that they fought. And then I ran into all this documentation about a war in 1349, which almost exactly coincides with the plague, which was just before. And I thought, how in the world are they fighting? But then I looked around Italy. Everyone's fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, and which is interesting. Yeah, one would imagine that if there was cessation, that there's this, the old expression, the cessation, cessation of all activities as a result of the plague. Can't collect taxes, you can't do anything, but they can fight. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, they fight this noble family out in the countryside. And it seems like a totally, as I say in the book, I mean, it seems like a totally, you know, superficial war, as you say. I mean, the one that certainly an American scholar wouldn't be interested in because it doesn't involve, uh, you know, the destiny of Florence. I mean, it's against a small group of, of, of nobles out in the countryside. Uh, it's not against another city-state, which they do the next year in 13, well, a couple of years later in 1351, they fight this really important war. So as I said, it gets caught between the plague and this other war. So no one's ever heard of it. And yet when I was reading Petrarch, I realized that he not only heard of, I mean, not only he was involved in this because his friends were killed by the Ubaldini, the two men that he intended to live with mm-hmm. in the face of all of this, this this damage. In fact, I was struck by how little he spoke about the plague and how much he spoke about the Ubaldini killing his friend. That really bothered him. You know? <laughs> and I thought, 
there's something strange here. But the Ubaldini did control the passes over the mountains that led to Bologna, right? They were con- they were controlling a, a trade route, and I, I imagine they were taking their ten percent from as a toll and so on. And it, and it could be on account of the plague that they they pressed tighter on this and so on. But they're a constant problem ever since the 13th century with Florence. There are always battles between the two of them, and they continue on until 1373 when finally when finally Florence defeats the Ubaldini. But this is a constant thing, and this is a constant thing not only in Florence but elsewhere in Italy, where you have these kind of outside groups. You have these noble families, these clans who control areas, and there has to be a sort of an accommodation between the city rulers. And these these families in Florence, these uh, the Ubaldini are directly north in what they call the Mugello region. Uh, but there's also the Guidi counts up there, and there are different counts in various places. And you know, Florence is Guelph, whatever that means. And these, um, yeah, it's a big issue. And but but nevertheless, these these uh, magnate families are often ghibelline, being thrown out of the city, and so they're always causing trouble. And they sit on key routes, usually in this case. That route that goes through the mountains over into the Romagna where Florence gets a lot of its food from. So the Ubaldini are very important. So important, in fact, when you know when Dante is thrown out of the city, when he's exiled, where does he go? He goes up to the Ubaldini. And then he with a group of them he comes back and he fights. Um, he fights Florence. So this is a you know, this is a, an ongoing problem. And it's no surprise to scholars, but it's 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 not really ever been the subject, so I, as far as I know, in English mm-hmm. of a you know. So I was very worried. I still am about having sort of isolated this. I mean, why? Who cares? Well, you know? but why did they do it? Not You suggest it's because Petrarch, the poet of peace, who wishes to end discord in Italy, that he convinces the Florentines to fight the killers of his friends. Well, I'm not so sure that he convinces them. He writes this incredibly aggressive letter. And I, I called it Petrarch's War in part because I wanted to make the joke, an yeah. internal joke, a, I guess a learned joke that, you know, Petrarch is famous for being a pacifist. And here he is. He wrote this letter, which took me by surprise as a historian. I'm not a literary scholar. You know, and he wrote this thing saying you must go to war to protect your honor and so on. And so, you know, it's basically what he wants, but it's also what Florence wants. So basically the way I put it was that this is something he asked for, but it was also in Florence's interest. Florence was already trying to stop the violence that the Ubaldini were committing before it got its letter from Petrarch. But then it sent his army almost three days later after it got the letter back out into the field. So I thought that was uh, at least, I mean, I can't prove and nor do I really want to that he actually convinced anybody. But the fact is Boccaccio, who seems to be more involved in politics than anyone realizes, transcribed this letter. Of all letters, why this letter? It's not that particularly literary and actually doesn't show Petrarch in a good light. So it struck me that it it did have an impact on people. Um, but like I said, I think you, you got a case of where Petrarch's interest and the interest of Florence kind of coincide with each other. So how long does this little war last and and Let's give it. It lasts for a couple months or even weeks. Yeah, a couple. Of, but it was it was a two phase operation. The first phase, uh, they thought they had won uh, basically, but then the Ubaldini start up again. So it's a two phase over about a year and a half. Okay, and they capture some of the Ubaldini castles, but as as we've alluded to, they don't crush the Ubaldini. They don't send them into exile from the uh, out from the entire. Well, they they're in the Florentine Cantado, the countryside. Yeah, right up in the north. Right? And but they don't. It managed to kill or expel them uh, under threat of uh, death or anything like that. 
Not um, at all. So it's inconclu- It's an inconclusive war in the it's end. It's an inconclusive war. If you read Volani, Matteo Volani, who writes about it, it sounds like it's conclusive. We wiped them out. But clearly what happens next in 1351, the Milanese invade through the Romagna exactly in the same place. And the Ubaldini are there to support them. And they win back virtually everything that they had lost. So totally inconclusive war. Again, making it not the greatest subject. (laughs) Yeah, not only inconclusive in some ways, making them into a fifth column for uh, the Milanese in the in the huge war of 1351. And that's what they were. Um, And that were for other enemies. You know, often when Florence was attacked, it was attacked by the north and through the north. They become allies with other people. In fact, for my bigger study, that's what I was doing. I was trying to figure out what these magnet families were doing when Florence was attacked. They always go with the other side, Mm -hmm. you know. And then it never occurred to me, uh, uh, at least when I was first doing this, that like 1349 would be a war in which Petrarch, of all people, and Boccaccio would be so deeply involved in um, Florentine policy or very much sort of in line with what was going on. That was a shock. And then it, it occurred to me that maybe we compartmentalize too much. Maybe mm-hmm. we should a little bit, you, you, you know, I think I've talked about thinking historically, thinking critically of our sources. Maybe there's more here. Than, than simply sort of like an inconclusive war with a family that no one's ever heard of, you know? <laughs> um, um, and I think there is. And, yeah. and I think it ties together a lot of things. And it, it does. And and part of it, to, to get at that, we're going to have to figure out, or at least, uh, or you're going to, you figured it out, you can tell us, uh, who were the soldiers in the Florentine? What does it mean to be a Florentine army? Is it a, has always, um, especially you with your work on mercenaries and on uh, Giovanni Acuto, uh, on John Hawkwood, you're always fighting against that SOB Machiavelli. Uh, Absolutely. You always have Machiavelli looking over your shoulder, smirking. Um, so, and it's, so who were the soldiers? Yeah, and I would say if Machiavelli were alive today, he'd be a neocon, a man who is extremely well-versed in the past, but actually when he applies it to the present, he makes terrible mistakes. Now, <laughs> As far as, I mean, because yeah, because there's presumptions about who's actually fighting, and I actually look closely, and I have over years about who was involved in the army. So if it was the infantry, which I describe uh-huh. in this, because we've, no, it, the, the weird thing is nobody knows anything about the Florentine army. They know everything about all the other things, but I think that's kind of considered, um, if you do something like that, you become a military historian, and that's not a good thing in the American Academy, frankly. And I've, and I've written this in print. Um, but so the army um, was composed of infantry, but from the Florentine state. So from an economic perspective, the fact that they're from like mountain regions, they're hardy souls from mountain regions, means that money that they're being paid is being brought back to mountain regions. And there have been studies which said, you know, why are these people in the mountain regions uh, – Oh, Bordell would say that they're the poorest and so, you know, the Bordellian mountains and so on. turns out they have a lot of money, you know, and it, another study showed that they did. And then I realized, wait a minute, they're using people from, from various parts of the mountain area, like near Pistoia and so on as their infantry. But their, um, their cavalry, uh, is, is generally mercenary. They're either Italian mercenaries or German mercenaries at this mm-hmm. time. And the thing that I found that surprised me, and I wrote an article on this, is that they're often the same person, that they keep a sort of like a core of trusted soldiers, whether they're Germans or Italian mercenaries in the cavalry, or even in the infantry, they have this kind of group. And 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 all studies nowadays say the infantry didn't matter. It was all about the cavalry. But the infantry, actually, they have nicknames. <laughs> they consistently work. I've actually traced this out for about 100 years. So some of the people I mentioned in this book who sort of form the core of the armies, they're still with them back in, you know, all the way until the 1390s. Oh. I didn't say that here uh, <laughs> because the, 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 the 
I, I kind of took a, a project, a long-term project, and decided to do a short-term project so that I could sort of pave the way for some of the type of issues that I want to deal with in the in Luckin, which I hadn't seen written about yet. Well, also, if we look at the epilogue, there are some other things that were punching your buttons, I think, that made you also – that you found, you found something that from this larger project that you could deploy at a certain target to a certain extent, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I kind of feel uncomfortable because I was so uh, – I was kind of – Pretty straight, but more, more straightforward than most, I guess, historians sometimes are about my disagreements with some of the artists. It's not, um, it's not supposed to be personal. Um, so back to, back to the soldiers. What, what percentage, do you have a sense of what percentage the infantry is of the Florentine army? Yeah, I think it's a larger percentage. I would say that there's greater infantry throughout the 14th century than there is uh, cavalry. And that's, again, not what the standard scholarly view is. The idea is that by the 14th century, the cavalry kind of take over. And and, 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 and a lot of the, the, the accounts by chronicles don't say much about the infantry at all. But I see that as a social issue. Mm -hmm. The chronicles themselves are not of the lower class. The, the infantry often is. And so they're more concerned about who the cavalry is. And so they just don't really talk much about it. But my figures suggest that the cavalry is larger. You have to understand, infantry too. Infantry is larger. In, yeah, infantry is larger. I mean, you have to understand, too, that a lot of this fighting takes place in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you surround the castle and you try to take it. You need infantry to do that. I mean, you can do that with cavalry, too. But one of the great, you know, people imagine war as being fought in the field and outmaneuvering people. Much of the war that's in Tuscany are done in the mountain areas around Tuscany. And this is an egregious example of it because it's out, you know, right on the border. And so the infantry was absolutely critical. And things like barattieri, there's like people who are just kind of called ribalds or yeah. something who like who didn't really weren't even trained really they seemed like the lowest element of society would go out and just burn houses you know and then they would mock the opponent that's the other thing i found in warfare there was actually sort of like systematic insults <laughs> that you would perpetrate in front of a town wall or in front of a castle wall saying you know um we're going to conquer you soon or 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 and and just like race mules or race um prostitutes in front of me tuscan war is bizarre yeah and these people what's uh, what's particularly interesting these people like Balatieri, they all have a different pay scale this is where they, we're getting into further parts of this book that's right they do they're often paid for simply burning a particular house. <laughs> so they get paid by by the actual act that they do, whereas soldiers and piece this, this is, they're piecework. <laughs> important as you, as you brought up too. I mean, the, the idea is like a cavalry person. Like according to the literature, cavalry people were were paid a certain amount if you were a captain, and then he would dispense it to his to his troops. Mm -hmm. The reality on the budgets is that the state decides what the captain's going to get and what his followers in his troop are going to get. They actually set salary scales for that. But if you're a baritary, there is no real sa salary that you get. You just seem to get, you know, if you, if you burn a house, it's, 10 florins here. Depends on what house it is, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you steal somebody, you grab somebody, uh, that, then you get also something, you know, part of the ransom. Uh, it, the, the, it's a complicated issue. I wanted to show that it was a complicated issue. Yeah. That was part of it. So yeah. why is it important, these pay scales for the – because now we're, we're segueing into the rest of this study. Why right. is it – because you're using this, this, this way that they're paid to tell you about other things which are otherwise opaque, right? I mean, this is yeah. – well, I think I think part of it again. I think I, this is, I guess, my my quarrel with the American Academy. There's so much on wages out there, okay. But if you look closely, almost all the wage studies are about um, temporary uh, building craftsmen's 
wages. I mean, they, they, they focus on that particular group because they're available. But the thing that struck me is that there are no real studies, at least not for this period of, of the plague and not for Italy, of soldiers' wages. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was interested in soldiers' wages because there isn't any study of them. And you would imagine they're a large part of the workforce. In fact, my, my point is that they are the largest part of the Florentine workforce, and yet we don't know how their wages go. The presumption, because of Machiavelli, as you mentioned, is that they're greedy, especially the cavalry, so that they're asking for the highest possible salaries they can get. And yet my data shows that they're actually getting the same salary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and it's not only from 1349 to 1350, which is what I placed the book on. I have evidence that this goes on. Their salaries actually decrease over 100 years, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I still don't have the right answer for it. it, it good luck with that, because that, that makes no sense to it me. It makes no sense. With, but it suggests that what Machiavelli says about, you know, defining them by their greed, there must be some other, you know, you mentioned, you know, Carl Polanyi, you know, Thinking of it, social embeddedness, there are other things, other markers for them uh, in terms of, you know, apart from actual money uh, that distinguish what they do. Yeah. So I've been, in, I mean, we're, we're starting to segue off, but in the last couple of years I've been really influenced by the sociologist Murray Milner and his discussions of status, mm-hmm. um, which he studied the caste system in India. And then he applied that in some ways to the high school, American high schools, and looking yeah. and looking for how status works out non-economic status right and, and there is uh, when i was reading that polanyi quote i thought oh yeah this is this is yeah. right up murray's this is where murray's coming from uh this is the stuff that we often um let's call it a pseudo late pseudo faux marxism <laughs> um we <laughs> neglect the other things that aren't economic uh quote unquote but status has actually economic implications ultimately yes. long term it will have implications for your children. This is the way aristocrats think. Read de Tocqueville. Right. Um, right. Exactly. And, and I also, you know, one of the things about the soldiers is that one should think of it as a more aristocratic workforce mm-hmm. because effectively someone with a horse in the Middle Ages is considered an aristocrat. Now, because of the popular literature, the idea that a mercenary could be an aristocrat is kind of kind of gone by the boards. The idea is that it's somebody who simply was the lowest form, as they say in these sources often, you know, and from some dubious background. But, you know, we don't have a study of where they actually come from. Mm-hmm. But my sense also that war is ennobling in and of itself. Yeah. And that it, trans- it, it transforms people of maybe dubious background into something of an aristocrat. And aristocrats don't demand wages the same way I think that working people do, right? I mean, there is some... Not, even, thing- not even in Italy. Not even in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I, I, I mean, you can satisfy my curiosity. How the heck did Florence pay for this? The well, tax base is somewhat shredded at the time. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the idea, you know, is how could they pay for it when, in fact, it wasn't only that the tax base was hit. It was hard to collect taxes physically at a time yeah. when, and yet they were waging war, which is another paradox. I mean, they were able to move move about to do that, but they had trouble actually collecting. You know, one of the things that struck me about this, and one of the reasons I wrote about it, is because when I looked into that, I found out that one of the major ways they, they 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 paid for the war was they actually used a confraternity called Or San Michele. Yeah, which talk, is very, talk about to, that. I love because yeah, they love very, the confraternities. It's, it's one of my it's, favorite it's, subjects. Yeah, well, the confraternity of Ursa Michele was, you know, one of the major ones in the city. And it was a place where which accepted during the plague pious bequests of people who had died. And so what happened and, and this is in the Chronicles and is well known, it became quite rich while the state 
had almost no money, or San Michele had a lot of money from from victims of the plague. And in fact, they they, uh, they even get a figure from the Chronicle, like five hundred thousand florins, which is a lot of money. Which <laughs> a lot of money. Typical year. And 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 they say it was mismanaged. I actually looked at the records to see if I could find what money they had and actually they don't have records from that time anymore so uh but but what what is clear from other records is that the city actually relied and asked for money from Orsan Michele in order to pay for this war and that the Orsan Michele actually lent it to the state without any interest. I was going to ask what the interest rate was. And the weird thing is that Orsan Michele because it's a confraternity is run by monks yeah. and the people, as strange as this may sound, uh, the people who actually are in charge of the armaments and, and, and the weapons that are used by the Florentine are also chamberlains who are monks. And two, at least two of the people who are in charge of the actual treasury uh, of Florence are also monks. And what is interesting in the legislation is that it had to go from the hands of one monk to another monk in order to make that sort of transfer of money um, for the war. But the war was largely paid. Not not exclusively. There there were other sources of funds, but um, I found it curious that 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 the war was paid. In other words, plague in some measure paid for a war against the Ubaldini, now, which is which is really interesting. You know, it really is it's very interesting. So what what you also you also mentioned a couple of very um, odd taxes. Um, yeah, we just should mention them briefly before we move on to the yeah. Wayne, well, well, the the, the three. Basic um, uh, sources of revenue for Florence are the gabelle on wine, the gabelle on gates, and the gabelle on salt. And they use those, but those were all down because gabelle on gate would be the amount of money you get from things passing in and out of the city, and that was restricted because of the plague. Uh, I, I actually highlighted a tax that no one's ever written about, which is called the diratura tax. Yeah, talk about that. And, and that's a strange tax because it appears on all the registers. Also, I worked on Siena, so I saw it there as well. And it's a, it's a tax on all financial transactions, um, a certain like 2% taken off of what well, you do, pay someone's salary or you pay money from one office to another. You have to pay the diratura, and that's used specifically for public services, like, for instance, beautifying the cathedral. So I see it as kind of a Christian element of the um, – Florentine tax system, which really people talk about sort of class issues regarding taxes and so on, but they never talk about a kind of an embedded Christian ethic. Mm -hmm. And even the words didatura, as I looked them up, I thought I saw him in Dante use this kind of a, a Christian moral rectitude. And so like every transaction in the Christian sense, you know, can be justified if it's used for some public good. And that public good would, uh, particularly Christian public good, like beautifying the cathedral. This struck me in a way because the largest part of the workforce were soldiers. And so the soldiers' money was being recycled back into the state to beautify the cathedral, which I thought was very, very interesting in a certain way. But So that, so that's another source of money, but, but not so much for war. I'd say that the wine gabel loans, they got loans from some wealthy uh, people in addition to the loans they got from um, Orsan Michele to kind of pay for the war. I mean, it wasn't expensive as some wars are because it was fought within their state, you know, it was, so, um, but, but, but there, there were a number, like I said, I'd say wine, wine and salt were two, two sources. Do they, um, do they take a sort of a toll of grain or something to, uh, as a tax, as a direct tax to feed the army while the army is on campaign? 
Well, my my evidence suggests that what they did is they gave the army these things free of charge. Okay. Okay. And that's important because there is this species of of of, of, of belief out there that armies created markets for merchants and that they would buy their goods. That probably is true if it's outside the state to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Um, but what I see, and actually even outside of states, what I've seen, because I, like I said, I've, I've traced this for over 100 years, is that they generally, the state generally provides things like food because it doesn't want its army to be bogged down by these sorts of issues. And they, they provide weapons for them. They provide lots of things for them. But food and drink and, you know, and, and prosciutto, too, is one of the things that they send up to the army, which is no surprise, but oil and so on. And I had a very complete record, and I do for other wars of, of what they send and they send a lot of expensive you know they, they spend a lot of money on the army but the state does itself and, well they don't want any soldiers foraging that's right they don't want any sort of lawlessness that comes from an army and the best way that's of doing right. is that is keeping it well supplied right if the, if the army isn't properly is if the army isn't properly supplied then what you're going to have is 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 them looting your own people which yeah. happens um, so um, it, it happens when you get a bunch of twenty-year-olds together in a group, they end up, you know, doing bad things. So <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> we both know this very. Well. <laughs> we do. So, did do you think? Do you have a conception that Florence believed this war would be economically beneficial beyond, of course, getting rid of the Ubaldini uh, throttling the trade into Romagna? Um, was yeah. was there? Did they did they have a war? I mean, in thirteen forty nine. Were the Florentine city fathers a bunch of proto-Keynesians who believe if you really want to jumpstart an economy, let's fight a war? Um, I'm not so sure. I think there was something of a vendetta aspect of it. You know, I mean, there was a personal emotional uh, response, you know, in a lot of these things. You know, Ghibelline, um, whatever that means, again, it's, it's hard to define. Which precisely. is a Ghibelline uh, is supposedly a supporter of the empire and the that's, Guelphs that's, are supposedly a supporter of the Pope. And yet, uh, even I can come up with three or four counterexamples. And in Florence, that's, it's even worse because of the black Guelphs and the white Guelphs and the, I don't know, the pink Guelphs and the purple. It's really, it's very confusing. Uh, as only as only an Italian quarrels can be. Exactly. I, I like to very, say proudly. Yeah. And yet there is still an aspect, I know, in the language of the war of a kind of a vendetta. Like they're, yeah. they're it's a, sort of like a family feud. To a certain extent. But yes, I think they were very aware of the fact that there were certain places. Florence is a strange place. It's not on the major road that goes that this called, thing called the Via Francesina, which which goes all the way up to um, to Paris, like the major trade route roads. It's not really on it. Uh, but it, it does rely on grain from the Romagna, also from Genoa and from various places. And so they're very aware that they need to just it, it, just prior to this uh, and actually even later than this, they built actually what they call new towns in that upper area so that they could somehow get around the Ubaldini for their trade. They're always concerned with being able to trade to the north. That's why they're so concerned about Bologna to get access. Bologna is its access up to Lombardy. So, yeah, I think this they, they are constantly aware of that. And when the Ubaldini get to the point where they're really closing down trade, they attack them. So I think that is they, they are. I don't think they need a you know, Keynesian in, in approach. And I do, like I said, I do think there's this kind of this familial feud sort of aspect to it. But they're very aware that they need to keep these roads open for their survival because they do not produce enough grain themselves to sustain themselves. In that sense, they're like the Venetians. The Venetians don't produce grain either, but they import it. The Florentines are always importing and they have to make sure that these, you know, down from the south 
a bit, again, through Genoa, the ports, and uh, Pisa, the ports, and so on. So they're always making sure that that's open as well. And also through the mountains of the Romagna. It's very important. It's important for their safety, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, physical safety, because if someone's going to invade the state, they're going to come through there. Um, what about the university? You mentioned the university as yeah. a potential. Are you just playing around with that? Because the idea here is that if we can get Petrarch to come to the university, that's going to be an economic boon. Uh is that and so therefore we have to fight the Ubaldini. I well look. I mean, they do in, they do offer Petrarch a spot in the in the university, uh, and Boccaccio has a lot to do with that, and he actually delivers the invitation. And uh, the one thing I could say also from having worked in Siena is that the Florentine University and the Sienese University really start taking off in 1348, and throughout Europe you find 1348 is kind of a time in which. Uh, there's investment in universities, and they're very clear in the legislation, certainly in Siena, which, whose, whose university is older, but they refurbish it. Uh, Florence makes a university, and, and they're very clear about what they're, they're, they're interested in. They're interested in improving human capital, and they're interested in attracting students and their money to these universities. So I see the university very much as – I'm different from a lot of people in that regard, but I do see uh, – who, who you know focus on the university itself. But I do see it as an economic issue, and I think someone like Petrarch coming to the city and coming back is something they seriously considered, and that would help fix that university because Bologna is where Petrarch himself went. That's the big university. Everyone's trying to emulate that, and to get someone like Petrarch would make it successful when it wasn't apparent – 1348 that anything would be successful right so um i think it's an important part of the story um let's move on to the um some of the related um larger issues that we're we're gonna spend a little time um i suggest i suggest in the notes that i i gave you that there's a standard receive view i remember this from from doctoral comps a standard receive view srv of uh post-plague italy uh, and basically, it was it's kind of commonsensical, and maybe it's too commonsensical. Um, I think it's what you might be suggesting um, that it was good to be alive, uh, yeah. and and that there was a sort of because the population was too high. This is sort of a neo-Malthusian argument. That's exactly right. And uh, that when the population was cut by a beneficial plague, all of a yeah. sudden, man wages went up. You know, wages it ooh, awesome, more yeah. economic activity. More productivity because the, the the survivors had to learn how to be more productive. I guess I, if I forget if this also is related to the increasing mechanization of like sort of water power in the late Middle Ages. I think people have made that argument. Yeah, uh, clockwork, blah blah blah. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, it was like Malthus. Uh, Malthus, and maybe it is a very Malthusian interpretation of of medieval Europe. Is that the plague was like really the best things that ever happened? Um, yeah. Your your how does studying soldiers' wages challenge that? I think we've already suggested how. Yeah, I, I well, I would I would only add to your 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 schema for Italianists. They even talk about market integration. Yeah, right. It's, you know the the, the the rise of territorial states makes greater market integration as a result of the Black Death, mm-hmm. which sets uh, Italy on the path to greater productivity eventually. Mm-hmm. The only thing I'd say about that is, like you said just at the start of this, it all fits too well. You know, and it's very and in in a sense, it's teleological. I mean, the evidence when you look at it up close and what I did is I looked at it up close doesn't completely support that. It doesn't totally negate it either. I mean, there are aspects of this that, in fact, are positive. Um, But um, but when you look at it up closely, there's a lot more going on. 
You know, and so this is the the point I try to make throughout the book is that you look very carefully at historical evidence. The idea that the market forces kick in and everybody's wages just go up if they're laborers. That's the critical thing. Um, simply seems to have missed a large portion of the Florentine workforce, which makes one wonder exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about occupation in the distant past or we're talking about wage in the distant past. And that's where I talk about context. You know, if you look closely at the context, um, these things are not so clear, you know. So you can't make a conclusion based on sort of a couple of the, – the, the thing that concerned me was that some of these conclusions about wage earners and how much they made are based on, say, four or five people who are building crafts laborers. And then there's a person who does this who's very mad at me right now for what I've, what I've said because that is the standard thing. And, and, and if you look at these wages and, – and, and persons have written and said, well, you know, you can't find any other wages. And as you mentioned at the beginning, we have archives with an enormous amount of statistical information, which hasn't been used. People have kind of like built off of everybody else's work and made this kind of grand construct. And to me, it's very dangerous, particularly in the world we're living today, if we decide that we're going to just take this information, these historical facts, and just build off of them instead of going back to what they are and actually asking the question whether, in fact, they're accurate as, as accurate as we think, or we're just simply choosing, cherry-picking examples to make this look this way. I mean, the, the thing about the, the prosperity after the Black Death, it, well, it works great, right? Because, you know, ultimately there is prosperity, but what is really happening after the Black Death? I mean, it's more confused than that. Yes, uh -huh. places where there seems to be prosperity, places where there doesn't. The, I, what I tried to do is present a vision that is kind of different, you know, where you've got um, bell ringers. Uh, representing the city and embassy all the way to Avignon and crazy things like that. Yeah, well, um, well could you explain that? Uh, I want to get to that. Cause I was just I was just about to ask that question before we got to the questions of context and sort of mm. problems of the long durée and, and all the rest of it. Um, why in the world would Florence send a cook and a bell ringer on an embassy to Hungary and not to cook or ring bells, uh, but to their ambassadors going to yeah. Hungary and then it, the cook or the bell ringer goes on to Avignon from on that uh, sort of like an enormous circuit. Why is this happening and how does this relate yeah. to wages? Well, it, it, <clears throat> it relates again to the overall situation of the labor force after in immediate aftermath of the black death. It's different from the way people see it, you know, and the closer you look at it, the more, Strange it is. This, you know, the idea of everything being inverted, this only strengthens that argument, right? The idea that you would use. But it, 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 it's, it is strange. I mean, there are nine people listed in Florentine accounts as being servants of the priors who run the city. And two of them are bell ringers, and, then, and one of them is a cook, and, and then you, the rest of them are actually simply called servants. And what I saw, and I don't know that I even used all of the evidence in the book, but I found that, you know, at times, all of them were out of the city at the same time, huh. you know, yeah. and it just made no sense because the idea, according to received wisdom, is that these guys tucked the priors into bed at night. They were simply servants and the bell ringer clearly would have been ringing the bell. So when there are no bell ringers left at the Palazzo Vecchio and there are no servants, someone is not tucking the priors into bed. Someone's not ringing the bell. These guys are being used as personal retainers. And for a city like Florence, where everyone talks about it being a republic, and especially in the modern world, people are confusing republic for democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, you're actually taking people who are your personal servants and making them do important ambassadorial things. It says something about the nature of the actual city, politically speaking. Um, Which is a very this, uh, old medieval um, development. I mean, this is, goes all takes us back to like the early Middle Ages and how the Chamberlain eventually becomes basically the prime minister. 
or how the the butler, the sommelier, the butler becomes something, you know, the head of the royal house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And this happens in republics as well as in monarchies, apparently. Yeah, and then the idea, you know, and the received wisdom for Italy is that, you know, the way monarchies work and the way lordships work are very, I mean, no, no, I'm saying lordships and republics is very different. Lordships, you would have someone like a personal retainer, you know, because they would tell you, but but the priors are supposed to do things in a more, again, we kind of confuse republic for democratic sort of thing. And, and meanwhile, as a result of the plague, at least in the short run, what seems to be happening is people who are not qualified to be ambassadors by any, you know, any of the evidence that we have so far, anything that anyone's ever written about, are actually being used not only on embassy, but on very important ones. Um, at a time like when these particular places, like Avignon is very much involved in what's going on in Italy. Uh, Hungary happens to have you know claims down in the kingdom of, uh, of, of Naples that are critical, and, 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 and there's a civil war going on there, and you're sending a bell ringer who's, we don't even, I, I mean, According to Gene Brucker, who's a wonderful scholar, I mean, these people were represented the dregs of society. Well, clearly they don't represent the dregs of society. What the heck is going on with the Florentine uh, administration? You know, and the reality is that we don't actually know much about what all these different people do. Um, uh, and clearly they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And to me, this was sort of like, you know, again, emblematic of the entire book, the entire approach. approach. You look at the context and suddenly the picture changes and it raises questions. And to me, good history raises questions uh that you know other people can answer um yeah. you know i mean I, I may not have answered all the questions but i raised a lot of questions that uh i don't really have complete answers for and i think that you know books should do that good lectures should do that good historical work should do something like that i mean uh, so we're um it's interesting we've come up there's at least at least in um Sam Weinberg and Lundell Calder's formulation of the 10 sort of acts of historical thinking we've covered three uh, yeah. we've, we've covered evidence, questions, and now we'll get to context. Um, so you, uh, in the epilogue, um, you have a problem with the current fascination with, um, we could almost a repristination, I would say, of the, the long durée, uh, which of things happening over a long period of time and with historians um, trying to understand processes that take a long time. Um, what's wrong with that? Or well, what's, maybe I should say what's right about that first. I should well, have I, you tell me what's right about it first. I think it's good that you say what's right about it because, first of all, I think there's something very good. I should start out first by saying I've read Sam Weinberg and Lemble Calder quite a bit, and yeah, even taught a class in which I use their work. And so, I mean, I very much appreciate their work. And in fact, I think this is the, the, the idea of critical thinking is what we're trying to teach our students and what we're trying to do ourselves. And that made a big impression on me while I was going through this data, trying to make the big argument that would resonate, realizing that there was a smaller one that may resonate less, but maybe more on. Well, I, I, I have to say, it, it struck me that as a whole, we could, if we wanted to, we could put together an entire series of books like Petrarch's War, which each had, I mean, this is an argument ultimately about context. Um, yeah. We could put a, a series of books together, each of which is about, I don't know, Bacon's Rebellion uh, in Virginia. But it would be about one other sort of phase of historical thinking. That's an idea for any publisher out there who's interested. I'm just saying. Um, but Eddie, go on. Sorry. But I, I, to answer your question about what's good about the long term, I think the long term is good. And I think that trying to put things together, you know, change over time is what historians do. 
And I'm completely for that. Yep. I think what, what bothered me about that was this book called The History Manifesto. And in the History Manifesto, what it did was made an artificial distinction between a short-term study, which are irrelevant, and a long-term study, which is more relevant. And what they did is prop up the Annals School and saying, this is the way you should be doing history, something that is relevant to people today, something that you can walk away from. And now, look, as teachers, we say this to our students, you know, history helps us understand the world today. But it strikes me that in order to understand the world today, we should look at history carefully rather than sort of ask a simple question uh, of, of the present and then go back and cherry pick examples so that it kind of fits something that, you know, like, yes, the roots of, you know, modern democracy are in the Middle Ages, which is what people did for, for years and so on, you know, and I said, no, it's more complicated than that. And in the crazy world that we live in now, that more complicated story is actually the more useful one. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. And that the distinction yeah. between short term and long term is a kind of an artificial one. So I'm completely in favor of long term because that's what I'm working on right now. And I've always done. I contradicted myself in this book on, on several things that I'd written earlier. Um, but I wanted to make clear because this manifesto said, you know, we as historians have to be the ones essentially. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Maybe I'm, being, I'm not being fair. But it's sort of like historians need to help set policy because we understand what the past is. And we have to take long term things because we do these short term irrelevant theses and so on. But, you know, understanding things sometimes in the short run helps us to kind of lay out the kinds of questions that we need for the long run. And, 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 so. the, and the temptation is again and again and again to cherry pick or elide numbers, events, evidence. Um, you suggest, you, you have this great quote, numbers are contextual embedded in a social system. Uh, I'm glad you say that because I, I, I mean, it is, it's just like reading a text. Yes. Uh, number doesn't mean anything unless you know what context it comes from. And that's the problem sometimes with an all. You use a number and you figure, okay, it's from the Middle Ages. We have so few numbers. It says even more. I mean, I, I probably got myself in trouble by quoting Harvard economics professors who say things like, you know, if you go back to earlier America, I don't know what you think of this, you know, Claudia Golden, who says, you know, go back to earlier America, it's kind of easier to deal with numbers in that sense, because there are fewer restrictions, fewer laws and fewer things. And so the number means more. I think this is crazy. I mean, I think this is, again, cherry picking. This is a kind of thing that, you know, you don't understand the context that you're dealing with. So therefore, it says more about that period than and, and the Middle Ages is that other that everyone reaches into and says, this is the way it was back then. And it becomes kind of, you know, used in, in, in these kind of simplistic ways. Yeah. And meanwhile, it does have its own embedded sociological circumstances. Which gets us back to why do knights, <clears throat> excuse me. Why do knights accept a lesser or increasingly decreasing salary? That's it's impossible exactly. to understand if in the same mindset, which you point out, the, the real epistemological problem of having a basket of goods exactly, uh, or even the more egregious problem, very egregious, I think. And I've seen this for years and we all do it. The yearly salary. Uh, I, yep. I've said I've said that in class, too. Oh, yes. Yeah, so a blacksmith yep. made about 500 bucks in 1870 which puts him well up, you know, in terms of, and it did, but what does that really mean in an 1870 economy? What can he get with? I, I don't know. I just say that. And I do too. And I have always done that. In fact, because I teach, I teach economic history at Vanderbilt a great deal. And so I use these kinds of things and, and I realize that they, they help with students because they, they make their impact. And it's true. I've seen these economic histories, especially with economists. I, I have um, colleagues who do archives who are mad at me for this book and, and have written to me to tell me that. But actually, if anyone 
I was picking on in some ways. It's the economists because sometimes what they like to do is bring everything together, get a basket of goods, make it sound like science when in fact it isn't because, you know, they answer questions that in the modern day people want to know the answer to and somehow, you know, look to economic history in the past to sort of reinforce what they're saying. And I, I would like it to be, okay, start with a hypothesis, look closely at the evidence, and if the evidence is contradictory, don't hide that, <laughs> you know, use it and say, what does that actually say about the past? Because even in the, in the present, economics is a contradictory science. I mean, you, you have different patterns going on at the same time. And I wanted to stress that, and at least in one book, and I, I think in using, I could have used more years, but in using two years, that enabled me actually to bring Petrarch into it, which was a way of saying you've compartmentalized so much that you've kind of missed the fact that literary trends are going alongside of also economic and political trends at the same time, which are, are, are very unusual. Yeah. In some, everyone's doing things and things are happening that people hadn't accounted for. And I wanted to uh, uh, say that, but um, but but I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the, well, I'm the um, well, I was quoting you. But yeah, that's why. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, you used earlier like the favorite historian adjective, which is complicated. Yeah. And we've even made it into a really great verb to complicate. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Jackson Lears, I know I've quoted this before, but he is very funny when he says, the use of that adjective and verb is why historians can never give TED Talks. <laughs> Because we get up there and for 15 minutes we explain why it's more complicated and then we get booed off the stage. Uh, even at TED and this and of course the TED talk, and this is probably something to do with the fascination with the long durée. It's I'm sure it's something that's fast. That's why um, I had a friend that said to me, "Why can't you historians come up with a conclusion like Jared Diamond? You know, he right. actually tells me things. Right. And you guys are all like, mm -hmm. and yet, uh, and yeah, sure, I'm embarrassed." But not that embarrassed because in the end, context wins. I, uh, I, I believe that with all my historical mind and uh, I, I'm not letting go of that. No, I think we're trained for that. And I think sometimes we like to forget about it because the payoff is greater if we do. Sometimes I do think there's a good probably a way to do a good TED talk and make and certainly there are a good ways to do the long durée. I mean, I would never throw that out. I think those are absolutely important. I just don't think that one contradicts the other. I think that one can tell a complicated story and 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 say that I'm raising questions uh, and still be interesting to people. In fact, even more so. I'm not sure I know exactly. How to right. Do that. I, I would I would be glib and say I still believe in walking and chewing gum. Although <laughs> I um, but I think, it, you know, probably if we're doing it right, it's more like juggling while riding a unicycle. Right. Right. I, and and that, that's a good image. And I would agree. I agree with that. Uh, I, but I do think it can be done. And I think we should ponder these sorts of things um, and talk about them openly rather than sort of, you know, relying on economy. And one of the things in the History Manifesto is that it, it complained about economists setting policy for the United States because they do give you answers that you could use, whereas we don't. And the person was saying, well, we should. And I would say, if you're going to do the long durée, then approach it again with the notions that you do with short-term things, that in fact, there are differences. I mean, 
complicate, you can use that word for it, but contextualize as well and tell a kind of a, a story that is that is nuanced, but not something that you sort of crafted very simply and then use these examples. Because, I mean, you know, I, right now I'm working with double entry bookkeeping and there's a book by someone who says, you know, double entry bookkeeping, be, which started in Florence, according to this book. And, um, you know, and it, it was the, the foundation of the modern world. You know, and I think to myself, I know this book. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it sells a lot of copies. And it's a, I mean, it's wonderful. And I enjoy reading these books. I mean, this is what got us into history to right, a certain extent. Exactly. Absolutely. So, yeah. So we can't be hypocritical in this. No, we can't. There's, a much more com- there's a much more complicated story that you would like someone to kind of like, even if you gave. I mean, I feel like, isn't it possible that my audience is smart enough to actually or my students are smart enough to actually understand that there are nuances in this that actually make it more appealing that you could and looking at something very carefully find a bell ringer in Avignon which is one of the reasons I used that because this is cool you know I mean on, on some basic level it's, it, this is this is more than you would have expected it's more than I can expect and more than I can actually really account for but the reality is that you know life the world the economy is complicated to use our, our word again but in complicated in ways that are fascinating not necessarily sort of you know eliminate us from 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 the story because the the simple the simple answer is often often the wrong one and if you're going to try to learn from history and you're looking for only a simple answer i mean i'm super sensitive probably because i'm a medievalist and because like i said everybody looks at the medieval period the medievalists to make themselves back and i wrote a book on historiography once you know and 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 the medievalists in the first instance tried to make themselves current by showing how all things that were modern came from the middle ages then nowadays the standard in the field is that everything is strange in the Middle Ages and that it's nothing like the modern period. But in a certain way, they're still sort of playing off of a kind of a kind of something that would appeal to modern people because strangeness appeals to modern people just like relevance. You know what I mean? It's, to me, it's like yeah. the other side of the same story. It's true. It's, it, 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 it's both strange and there are modern things there. Well, it's <laughs> like a, I mean, this is funny as a, uh, as a Southern historian, I can also I, I'm playing upon the same exactly the same tunes. Uh, the same, the, hitting the same chords on the piano, right? It's uh, both. It's it's representative and emblematic of the rest of America, but at the same time, it's the other. So you know, either either way, I win. <laughs> But but it but it but it's but it's true. I mean, and 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 it and it needs to. I mean, in my opinion, yeah, you know, it yeah. needs to be said. And you know, and 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 it often isn't. And and as I said, I mean, I, one of the things I worried about was that you know, especially as a historian, we tend to fetishize other historians, and there's a payoff in that. You know, I say like like in the history manifesto, they're saying the Annal School and Burdell is just the greatest thing ever. I mean, I've read Burdell quite a bit. I've taught Burdell. But there are parts of Burdell I don't get anything out of. Some of it is sort of like put together with an example from 200 years distance to tell you that, you know, a labor market is so on. And I think to myself, what the hell is it? I mean, yeah, maybe I, I found that I, I was raised in a in an all department. Um, and so I sometimes, yeah, but I remember having the exact same experience uh, reading him with those two in the same paragraph, you know, sometimes. And I was never, is this history? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. What, 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 it, what, you know, is this? And yet, I, and yet, yeah, exactly. And you would agree that the larger idea, like the, the Mediterranean as a unit is a fantastic idea. The idea of capital cities in, 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 in economy, I think is a wonderful thing. It's out there. And I think people should think about it in yeah. those terms. And and so he's he's set the terms of discussion that are absolutely critical. But I've seen a, a something like a history manifesto. This is the way we should all do history. And I think it could be dangerous when, you know, someone writes, for instance, a history of reading. 
and then takes one. I mean, I think I did. There's a, there's a book out there now, and Enzak takes an example from here, an example from there, and they're completely different places. And it's like, I mean, I, I think one that's one. It sounds wonderful. But when I read the book, I looked over the book, I thought, this doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't help me with anything. I mean, it's sort of like, uh, uh, again, it's someone sitting, having come up with an idea and then not really kind of thinking about it carefully, running through the evidence, doing the things we tell our students, you know, with Sam Weinberg and Lendl Collar saying, you know, do with your students, have them work through the problem, not necessarily just remember the fact, but, you know, work through the evidence and and, and, and think critically about things. And and I I said, you know, if history is supposed to teach a lesson, that lesson should be that we should think critically about everything in the modern world as well and not look for simple solutions um, that kind of allied with our politics or whatever, you know. My guest today has been Bill Cafaro. He is the author of Petrarch's War, which I regret to say you should probably wait for the paperback because of uh, the publisher charging the full economic price, uh, apparently. Uh, Bill, this has been a delight. Uh, thanks so much for Thank talking you. with me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 